Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Have you ever prepared to read or listen or watch a story, and before it started, there was a caution about the content possibly being too intense or disturbing for some audiences? Well, this next story from the book of 1 Samuel, contained in chapter 28, ought to come with just such an advisory label or warning. In today's passage from Scripture, things are about to get very dark very fast. And what happens will be more than a little unsettling. But it's a scary story, not for the reasons that we first perceive. As 1 Samuel 28 interrupts the story of David and shifts the focus to King Saul, the narrator is going to take us into the abyss, the inevitable destination where we insist, when we insist on repeatedly and defiantly living our life our way instead of God's way. Saul is about to, for all intents and purposes, put the nail in his own coffin. So then let us consider ourselves so advised, forewarned, as we are about to hear, dive even more deeply into one of the most frightening and tragic stories from the Bible. However, let's also take heart, as this cautionary tale we'll soon discover doesn't leave us without any hope or encouragement. Amid all the terror that will follow, for sure, we will also discover yet again how persistently available and ready-made for us the grace of God truly is, if we have the good sense to embrace it, to surrender our very lives to it. So let's hear from 1 Samuel chapter 28, starting in verse 3. And please keep those Bibles open as we'll be looking at the whole chapter today. The scripture for today is from 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 12. Saul and the medium at Endor. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his hometown of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and all that contact the spirit of the dead from all of the land. The Philistines assembled and came out and set up camp at Shuem. Now Saul gathered all of Israel and set up his camp in Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams, by Urim, or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and the two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one that I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set up a trap for my life to bring on my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've all had one of those days 
when absolutely everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And King Saul is having one of those moments. Today is turning out to be arguably the worst day ever of his life. For armed to the teeth with iron weapons and chariots, the Philistines are no longer preparing for a brief border raid or skirmish, but for a full-scale, all-out invasion of the northern part of Israel. War is coming. And with their ancient version of shock and awe, the Philistines are aiming to take control over the Jezreel Valley, a vast, agriculturally rich plain in Israel that goes as far east as the Jordan River. And such a prize would not only enlarge the Philistines' territory, it would also bring the people of Israel to their knees in subjugation and service. So as the king's scouts inform him of the staggering size and strategic location of the Philistine army amassed around his border, Saul realizes he is looking down the barrel of a gun that is about to unload with a level of force his troops cannot defend against and won't likely survive. To add insult to injury, the word on the street, the word on the street is David and his 600 men have gone over to the other side. They're fighting alongside the Philistines. Saul has managed to chase David out of Israel, yes, and right into the hands of Israel's most formidable enemy. Outgunned, outmanned, feeling isolated, King Saul suddenly, but not surprisingly, finds himself some good old foxhole religion. Previously, Saul had been content to ignore or deny divine direction, but now Saul decides it's an emergency, and so he breaks the glass and sounds the prayer alarm. But alas, the sound of the alarm goes unanswered. Despite numerous efforts to inquire of God, the Lord remains silent, not answering or returning Saul's call. Saul mechanically follows all the standard Torah protocols for making a divine connection so that the Lord would have little choice but to communicate with him and give him what he sought. And isn't that how it's supposed to work? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? I mean, we go to church, right? We pray, we sing a few songs, we read our Bibles, we listen to a sermon, we tithe, we come to the table, we decorate our lives with all the markings of being God's people, and then the Lord is supposed to answer. We expect the Lord to give us what we believe we want when we need it. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Well, the presumption that our Creator is our beck and call God quickly get shattered as we painfully discover that the Lord doesn't march to the beat of our drum. But contrary to Saul's perception, and possibly our way of thinking, God's silence here is itself an answer. After all, Saul previously has made it clear, abundantly clear, that he wanted to be free of the commands of God, as Saul has repeatedly chosen to ignore and even defy the Lord's counsel and direction. So, now, God gives Saul what he's wanted. The Lord keeps his mouth shut. God is no longer telling Saul what to do. And hasn't the Lord said enough already? I mean, hasn't the Lord said enough already? I mean, how many times did Yahweh explicitly already tell Saul where all his disobedience and rebellion against him would lead? And it's right here, isn't it? Reaching the end of all that Saul can do on his own and finding himself still staring death in the face. God is silent here because there's nothing more to say that hasn't already been said. Sometimes, sometimes when it feels like the Lord is silent in our lives, sometimes 
we need to honestly ask whether the problem is on our end or his. Is God not picking up when we call, or has the Lord been speaking all this time, trying to connect with us, but we just don't like, we just don't want to hear what the Lord's saying? Well, the answer of God's silence in this case is unacceptable to Saul. No. And so true to form, Saul resumes his typical approach in his relationship with the Lord as he immediately looks to work around God to get what he wants, to acquire a bit of divine wisdom his own way. Saul becomes convinced that he needs to talk with Samuel. He needs to talk with Samuel, the prophet of the Lord who previously advised him on all things divine. The only problem is, well, Samuel's dead. Samuel's dead and buried, in fact. But that doesn't stop a man who has power like Saul as he decides he'll just find a medium or a necromancer. He'll just find someone who can communicate with the dead to serve as his radio transmitter for calling Samuel up from beyond the grave. You see, back then, people believed the dead no longer being conformed to the time and space of this life. The, the dead had information on the future. And if you wanted, if you wanted to get the advance inside scoop, you needed someone who could bring up the dead. Bring them up. Bringing them up in the sense that back then the dead were thought to live underground in an underworld. So if you wanted to communicate with the dead, if you wanted to get them to give you some information, you had to bring them up from the world below to the world above, and usually against their will. Hence, you needed a specialist. But you see, again, Saul has a problem. During his tenure as the king of Israel, he expelled all the mediums and spiritists and their practices from the land of Israel. And in fact, this action was a high mark of Saul's kingship. This was a good thing because this was something the Lord explicitly directed Israel not to do like the surrounding nations, not to get involved with those who mess around, those who mess around with trying to speak to the dead or contact other spirits. You see, the Lord promised to give his people all the information he wanted them to know about the future through his word, through his prophets. So the irony of the situation becomes clear, right? Saul, in his despair, turns toward that which he knows is wrong, something that he, as the king, outlawed in Israel. Saul is attempting to gain divine wisdom by a means that God specifically invalidated as both being wrong and dangerous. You know, rather than being disturbed by all this as I'm sharing it, we might chuckle. You know, we might chuckle at the superstitious mind of our ancestors in the faith. And yet, aren't the very same practices that are here in this chapter alive and well today? I mean, aren't we, like Saul, tempted to explore alternative routes to divine wisdom? Fortune tellers, horoscopes, tarot cards, seances, Ouija boards, they're very popular. Some people view these as novelties, as harmless as playing a board game, whereas others are much more serious and fixated upon shaping their lives based on any sketchy and ambiguous information they can get from these sources. And for we who profess to believe in Jesus, indulging any or every single one of these practices makes us no different than Saul. It makes us no different than Saul as it represents nothing more than an attempt to work around rather than to rely solely upon, to trust in the Lord's direction and leading. Now, despite his previous expulsions of all the necromancers from the land, Saul manages to locate a witch living in Endor. 
Under the cover of night, Saul goes out to see her. He comes disguised so as to not be recognized as the king, you know, the same king who formerly banished those of this woman's kind. Saul's treachery knows no bounds in this encounter as he swears to this fearful woman, this woman who thinks she might be in a trap, he swears to this fearful woman in the Lord's name that she will not be punished for doing something that he, again, as the king of Israel, knows full well is forbidden by God's law. But eventually, Saul proves unable to hide his hypocrisy as the witch recognizes him for who he is, the king of Israel. Her realization of this, however, comes in the midst of the conjuring up of the dead prophet Samuel from beyond the grave. Now, something that's important to notice is there's no indication in how this story is told that she did anything to make Samuel appear before Saul. Go ahead and read it again. She speaks no magical words. There are no special effects like fire or smoke. There is no performance whatsoever of an occult ritual. What happens is Saul merely asks to speak with Samuel and suddenly there Samuel was. In fact, the witch, is, the witch herself is as surprised as Saul when this happens, suggesting that this is not typically how things work when she's trying to communicate with the dead. All of this points to the appearance of Samuel as being solely the Lord's doing and not the medium's. God breaks his silence to try one last time to get through to Saul. And as Saul lays himself on the floor, prostrate on the ground, Samuel appears before him, nothing like a magical genie seeking to grant his master's witch, and more like that of an agitated, bellowing spirit, as Samuel begins by questioning Saul, demanding to know why he is being disturbed like this. And as Saul tries to make his case before Samuel, you got to wonder if Saul even hears what he's saying out loud. Does he even hear himself? as he shares the fear of the impending Philistine invasion, as well as his mounting frustration due to God's silence, Saul manages to admit with a straight face that he's trying to use Samuel as some sort of backdoor to the Lord to get some divine direction. And Samuel, Samuel responds to Saul with yet another question, pretty much asking what kind of answer Saul expects from the Lord given his prior actions. If after all this time, Saul has proven again and again to be unwilling to seek, unwilling to listen, unwilling to follow the Lord, why would he expect God to say anything different from what's been already said? Samuel's point to Saul is that nothing surprising is happening to you. This is precisely what the Lord told Saul was going to happen because of his persistent disobedience and rebellion, that Saul inevitably would lose the kingdom and would lose his life. The only additional clarity that Samuel brings is to confirm Saul's worst fears. That tomorrow is the day of reckoning. Tomorrow, Saul will be defeated by the Philistines. Tomorrow, the kingdom of Israel will fall. Tomorrow, Saul is going to die on the field of battle. Tomorrow, in a matter of hours, the Lord's judgment will come upon Saul. And this final picture we are given of Saul in this chapter it's terrifying and sobering. I mean, look at him. Here is a person who had it all, chosen by the Lord to be the first king of Israel, empowered by God's spirit to lead a people to, into at last becoming a nation, supported with divine wisdom and guidance, the divine wisdom and guidance of the word of God through the prophet Samuel, protected and defended by the Lord in the face of outside attacks. Nearly everyone believed that Saul could become the best of the best. 
Saul, who began with such promise. Saul, who once stood head and shoulders above most people, is now flat on his back, filled with dread, greatly shaken, unable to move and unwilling to eat. Let us look carefully for the picture that we are left with is the true reflection of who Saul has become, of who Saul has become after all the illusions surrounding his sin have been stripped away. You know, in our day-to-day lives, we often look and see people surrounded by all the trappings of power and success that even when we perceive their brokenness, their pride, their self-centeredness, their violence, even then, we still fail to see their true state, who they really are inside. Because by all appearances, right? By all appearances, they look to have it all. So we imagine them happy and successful and content. We even rationalize their flaws and their sin, well, as the price of fame and fortune, I guess. But here in 1 Samuel, the Lord in his providence, through the telling of this story, the Lord enables us to see Saul for who he has become, unfiltered and unmasked, unfiltered and unmasked of all the perceived earmarks of success and achievement, all the pomp and circumstance stripped away, all the military might and royal treatment gone. The appearance of Saul, the mighty king, is stripped away, and we are left here with the reality of Saul, the broken and sinful man. Here we see Saul for what he has become, what he has become living on his own terms, apart from, in defiance of the way of the Lord. And he's isolated and alone. He's helpless and afraid. He's left with nothing but the utter darkness of despair and the inevitability of his pending death. Saul is without hope. Beloved, we look away from this haunting picture to our peril. For this is what Saul's sin indeed looks like. The net effect, the intended result. This is what Saul's sin has made him into. This is the reflection of where our sin, all human sin, left unchecked, left defiantly indulged, ultimately takes us. You know, the stereotypical view of the execution of God's judgment upon human sin is the Lord throwing down bolts of lightning or smiting us with some terrible plague, natural disaster, or some violent snuffing out of our lives. But here, we learn that the exercise of the Lord's judgment is much less theatrical and inarguably much more inherently logical and fair. God's judgment upon Saul in light of his repeated disobedience and continued unrepentance, God's judgment upon Saul is to give Saul over to his desires, to let Saul take hold of everything he persistently, sinfully grasped at. To put this more simply, the Lord's judgment upon our sin is to let us reap what we sow. If this is what you insist on having, well then God says have it, have at it. But you must bear the consequences of taking what I have told you is not good for you. Then you bear the consequences of what I've warned you in the end will kill you. None of this should have been a surprise to Saul. I mean, that's Samuel's point, right? The message has been made loud and clear long before the Philistines were positioned to invade Israel. Long before Saul desperately tried to launch some sort of spiritual signal flare to heaven, multiple messages from God had been sent through his royal advisors, through prophets and priests like Samuel, through his son, Jonathan, through servants like David, advising and cautioning Saul that he was headed in the wrong direction and that if he kept going that way, it was going to end badly, tragically. 
My friends, deep down, Saul knew where he was headed. Saul knew what he was becoming. He felt it. His God-given, tormented conscience regularly convulsed in his inescapable awareness of a painful reckoning he would not be able to avoid. And in Saul, we witness the irrationality that is commonplace to all humankind. The irrationality, particularly in our relationship to God. Deep down, we know the truth that there is a God. And we should be looking to and following his lead in how we live. We know, we sense, we hear the inevitable outcome of our disobedience. The inevitable outcome of living my way instead of the Lord's way. And yet, like Saul... We persist in blindly going forward, convincing ourselves if we just put it out of our minds and continue doing what we know is unwise, what we know is wrong, maybe God's judgment will never arrive. Like Saul, we try to find the loophole, sincerely believing that maybe we can find a way around the Lord's judgment before it comes. It sounds so irrational when it's said out loud, right? But it's so logical when you try it. But like Saul... What we fail to recognize is God's judgment isn't something we can avoid in the future. The judgment of the Lord begins here and now. While God doesn't force people to follow him or his ways, the Lord brings his judgment in the present by giving the defiant and the unrepentant what they seek in their sin, allowing us to experience whatever we seek the most, good or bad. The Apostle Paul, in his writing to the Romans, affirms this idea when in the first chapter of his letter, he repeats three times that our Creator's response to those who have rejected him is to give them up to their own sinful desires. In other words, the judgment of God is experienced in God letting those who demand it, those who insist upon it, to experience the full effect of the sin they seek. Our sin is, in many ways, its own consequence. St. Augustine, in his famous book, The Confessions, expressed it once this way, every disordered soul is its own punishment. You see, our sins, our rebellion and rejection of God, and their consequences are their own penalty. The disorder and destruction that result from each of us going our own way, rather than following the Lord together, that wreaks enough havoc Enough suffering, enough pain, enough loss that the Lord doesn't need to add any thunder and lightning. What is it? What is it? What sin threatens us? What is the sin, the rejection, and the rebellion against God that if we're truthful right now could most easily consume us? That if we step back and take an honest look is already acting like a cancer within us. You know, turning us defensive, forcing us to hide part of ourselves, making us paranoid, causing us to lash out in frustration or anger, filling us with fear born of guilt and shame. What is it? Where are we resisting, defying the Lord's will and direction for our lives, while at the same time trying to work around God like Saul to get what we want, even though we know it's not what God wants for us? Will we dare? right now, to see our sin, our struggle with God for what it is? Will we allow the word and the spirit of the Lord to strip our sin of all its illusions, of all the lies it tells us? Will we face, through the example of Saul, the terrifying glimpse of where our sin leads, of what kind of person we become in the end? 
When we talk about the judgment of the Lord as giving us over to our ill-conceived and wrongful desires apart from him, understand, this isn't God executing some, some sort of, I'll give you something to cry about justice. No, this is our creator revealing to us and, and hopefully teaching us the outcome of the things we seek and long for apart from his will. If we insist, if we so demand, our Heavenly Father allows us to leave home and go all prodigal, to try and make a name for ourselves, to fashion a destiny apart from his inheritance. The Lord gives us enough rope to nearly hang ourselves if that's what it takes for us to finally realize our true identity, the best version of ourselves that we can become, and the destiny that we long for, a full, abundant, and everlasting life, these things can only be found by coming home to him, by following his lead. Something worth noting here, in the midst of an otherwise scary story, is that while the Lord declares a word of judgment to Saul, it is not one divorced from the possibility of grace. Here's what I mean. If Saul was doomed, that's it, it's done, game over, the end, then why did God break his silence? Why did God show up to speak to Saul through Samuel? I mean, if, as some perceive, we look to a spiteful, vengeful God, then why didn't the Lord just leave Saul to receive a message of false hope and comfort from the medium? Why not let King Saul hear what he wanted to hear? You know, hear what he wanted to hear, that everything was going to be okay, that he would live to fight another day. Why didn't God do that? There can be really only one answer. And it's this, in the midst of his judgment, God continued to offer Saul grace the opportunity of repentance, of coming clean, of returning back to the Lord. Saul had already lost his kingdom. That was done. Saul was going to lose his life. No way out of that. But Saul was still being given in this moment the opportunity to find, to take hold of something, of someone greater than all that he was about to lose. His relationship with God, a life with the Lord beyond death. To the very end, the gift of salvation is here. Reconciliation, redemption, resurrection. It was all put before Saul. Given the grace of God expressed through this unusual final warning, how can any of us doubt? How can any of us doubt that if Saul had flung himself down before the Lord in tears, confessing where he had gone wrong, repenting deeply, and casting himself on God's promised mercy, can there be any doubt that God would have forgiven Saul? Not that the Lord would have taken away the consequences of Saul's sin, but that God would have carried him through those consequences and into life everlasting with him. Beloved, I say it again, let us pay careful attention to this. Saul turned in desperation to God because he had nowhere else to run. And this was the right move. This was the right move. It's the only real move any of us have in this life. Saul's problem was that he didn't follow through on that move all the way through. Tragically, to the bitter end, Saul doesn't repent. While God's words spoken through Samuel terrify Saul, it doesn't move him to listen and obey. And this is because Saul's religion was to try and manipulate the Lord rather than to let his life, his character, be shaped by God. This is because Saul wanted salvation with no strings attached and by whatever means, and God is not available on those terms. Grace is free indeed, but grace is costly. It is not cheap. 
Grace is not without price, a price that we can't pay, but a price that we must acknowledge and be claimed by. Saul, for as low as he had sunk, in looking to the abyss of death and hell, despite every opportunity he was provided, refused to see where his sin had led him, who he had become, and never turned back to God. For all the grace he was given, Saul gained nothing and just plunged forward to his death. My friends, from Saul's tragic end, we have much to learn so that we can know a different end and live out of a better hope. We're all, all of us, works in progress. We're all of us, students of life, learning and growing as we follow Jesus. And that means we all sin. We can and we will, all of us, give in to sinful desires, you know, to be selfish, to be rash. We can and we will attempt to take control in order to get whatever we want or to protect ourselves from what we don't want to face. And while God will allow us in those moments to go our own way, the Lord will continue to seek to convict and correct us, to caution and reorient us, to turn us around and turn us back to him. Our Heavenly Father repeatedly gives us grace, nudging us, confronting us, even meeting us, as we see here, even meeting us in the darkest moments of our human nature, offering us a way out, a way home. And in those moments when we're challenged by God, sorry often seems to be the hardest word. In response to the challenge of God's judgment in our lives, we can forsake the opportunity of God's grace, right? We can forsake it by just wallowing in our guilt and shame or by bemoaning and blaming others for where we find ourselves or by trying to cover it up and deceive ourselves by spending more, doing more, and just distracting ourselves with pleasantries. We can even be like Saul, shrugging our shoulders, turning a blind eye, and keep choosing to embrace what we know is wrong despite the inevitable consequences. But my friends, the only viable response we have, the only viable response we have before the simultaneous revelation of God's judgment and grace is to confess, to come clean in order to be made clean. We need to repent, we need to turn around and follow Jesus instead of continuing to face the wrong direction and go our own way. We need to abide instead of resisting and fighting against the Lord. We need to lay down our arms and surrender into his. Now that rehabilitation and recovery, it won't be easy. There will be consequences to face and amends to make along the way. But beloved, God is faithful. God is faithful. The Lord will give us all that we need to become everything he created us to be. Beloved, when the world of our own making inevitably falls apart, as it always does, we need to embrace the grace being offered to us. The grace of God that is able to reach us no matter how far we've gone. The grace of God that is able to reach us no matter what we've done. Let us face the brokenness in and around us for what it is. And let's run once more to God our Father, confident and assured that as we do, as we run to him, he will run even faster to meet and embrace us and welcome us home. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.